0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name is Edwin Davis, and joining me this week through the Miracle of Satellite Technology is Emily Benita. Hi, Emily, how's it going?
1: Not too shabby, thanks Ed. Uh, you speak to me as someone who has recently holidayed mm. within the borders of the um, <laughs> within the borders of the devolved set of powers that constitutes for a country that I <clears> live in, um, and it was lovely. Um, I drank very nice beer and whiskey steadily all day, and everything I ate was fish for about four days. So I've got a little bit of that kind of. Setting back into the uh, the gear of domestic obligation, but it could be an awful lot worse. How are you?
0: I'm good. I haven't been anywhere, although this morning I did go on a journey through time and space with uh, <laughs> Bill Preston and uh, Theodore Ted Logan for watching uh, Bill and Ted face the music, uh, which oh. of course is now available to rent digitally here in the US and I presume elsewhere but um, that's where I watched it because obviously that's where I live and you know what, it, it was mostly excellent uh, I really enjoyed it it felt like a very fitting continuation of those earlier movies where it's kind of like uh, agreeably daffy and the time-travelling stuff is doesn't make a total amount of sense if you try and think about it so it's best not to and just, <laughs> you know, Basil exposition like just have fun um but I did really really enjoy it I thought that it was really sweet and uplifting and touching particularly in terms of its depiction of the relationship between Bill and Ted and their children and its focus on their own sense of disappointment and failure and their feeling like they're they've reached the end of their road um it's very smart in terms of its structure in that it kind of has two plots going on at the same time one is bill and ted going incrementally into their own future to find a version of themselves that has the song that you know they're destined to write that's going to reset all of reality and kind of bring everyone together and then their children going back in time to like pick up a load of different musicians to help them realize that song and it's so it's, it's kind of a fun thing of on the one hand a stealth remake of the original movie but with you know different characters and then uh, the other ones you know these characters that we're aware of kind of going through a different journey into their own kind of sense of crushing disillusionment with how their lives have turned out where <laughs> they're constantly meeting new versions and older versions of themselves who are progressively more awful in different ways and it's really <laughs> funny like, like i i think initi- the first sort of 20 minutes or so i was like oh this is this is sort of funny but like it kind of feels a little awkward but once you really start getting into the like time and reality jumping stuff that really kind of kicks in and you get to see Keanu Reeves and Alex Winter playing all these different versions of themselves. I think it it really kind of like picks up. And uh, yeah, and like Samara Weaving and Bridget Lundy Payne are both really really good as Billy and T, the two the two younger members uh, oh, of the cast. And, I see what they did there. <laughs> and one of the things it's a, it's a small kind of like choice, but one of the things I was really I really felt like, okay, they, they've gone into this with the right mindset and the right reasons is that there aren't a bunch of famous people playing all of the historical figures because it could have been so easy for them to just, like, go full in on, hey, Bill and Ted are back and look at all of our famous friends who are showing up to kind of, like, take <laughs> part. It, it felt more like, oh, wow, they pick someone who looks and sounds a lot like Jimi Hendrix. They pick someone who looks and sounds a lot like Louis Armstrong. You know, like, it, it kind of nice. felt like that approach to it kind of felt right to me and didn't feel like they were trying to overshadow, you know, the, the jokes and the story by just constantly distracting you with, with famous faces. Although it is fun seeing like Holland Taylor show up or Kristen Schaal or, um,
1: it's a different kind of it's a different kind of celebrity though, isn't it, Ed? Like the, mm. the two of us being like incredibly plugged into these things, which you know, as much as we both enjoy it, is negligible. Like the jury's out as to how good it is for either of us. But mm. those are our celebrities, and I think they know their audience as to who they're playing to. And for some reason, yeah. that reminds me of um, in terms of a string of celebrities being distracting years ago. Um, I ended up watching ITV2 just before Christmas with my best friend when I was staying at hers for some festive times and what was on but Michael Bublé's Christmas special. And he was just like, I just didn't realise how Michael Bublé could be so knowing because he essentially had his heavy air quote here, Canadian mountain chalet that also seemed to have room for an entire studio audience in it. And it was just this stream of people turning up, including... Everyone was introduced with my good friend. Like Gary Barlow turns up, and you're like, "What <laughs> is going on?" Yeah. So I often think of when you know when when you do have. And it's often a sign that stuff hasn't really been thought through, and it's a bit of a novelty if you're like, "Oh, is this person we recognise and this person?" Mm. So yeah, I'm glad that Bill and Ted have avoided Michael Bublé's Canadian Mountain Chalet effect. Yeah,
0: exactly. Mentioning Bublé there just reminded me of um, the—I think it was the 2012 Christmas SNL, or maybe 2013, where Bublé was the guest, uh, the, the singer, and. Jimmy Fallon was the host and they had that one where it was Michael Buble's Christmas album they just had like, like all the cast playing different singers to uh, collaborate with him and for some reason the one I always think of is Nassim Pedrada's M.I.A. where it just kind of like goes quick, quick, quick and then firing a gun several times which I just <laughs> remember being really <laughs> a really funny sketch. But yeah, uh, Bill and Ted face music I think is 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 lots of fun. I think it's in keeping with the originals without being like totally overshadowed by it. There's a couple of nods here and there like you know they have George Carlin showing up as a hologram of himself when they walk past the original time travel you know the phone th- the phone box and there's one reference to station which kind of comes out of nowhere and I kind of feel like they just crammed in and it kind of that that to me was like the the, the one of the things that didn't quite work but uh yeah I think it's it's a lot of fun and it's it's particularly a delight seeing William Sadler play death again I think oh. he's He's so funny in the original. He's really funny in this one. Bringing him back in as like the bitter ex bassist who's always who's still really angry about the band falling apart and he's every line he, did <laughs> he had is is, is hilarious. Uh, how's your week been culturally, other than other than your whole day?
1: I think the cultural the cultural um, standouts are that I got my boyfriend to very as he is very game, bless him, um, to watch How to Lose a Guy in Ten Days
0: which Mm. i which
1: i think watching it again i'm like i think this is the perfect rom-com like Mm. it's it's the only one of the past like 10 15 years that is anywhere near the level of something well as we all know that the the best romantic comedy of all time when harry met sally Mm. because it has that kind of sort of thing about how inherently ridiculous it is that the genders feel they have to lie to one another (laughs) in order to, to get by. And Kate Hudson should have had an Oscar for that. Like, you know, we, we've we've spoken many a time before in terms of how awards generally, you know, notice and valorize drama and trauma and vexing and biopics. And yet mm. I think Kate, H- Kate Hudson's um, performance in that is genuinely one of the most perfect sequences of like clowning and she's also like I forget how Andy's actually like she's not vapid in the slightest and she's incredibly caring about her friends and the whole thing comes together because she's just trying to save her friend from someone else treating her personal life as carrion she's like well I'll sort of do that anyway so I loved that and then we watched Tamara Drew so it's like I I went on a real sort of like comfort watch but I also finished finally because I've been meaning to read it for absolute ages. Um, The Red Parts by Maggie Nelson, Mm -hmm. which is the subtitle is Autobiography of a Trial. And it's about her aunt's murder trial. Mm -hmm. And her aunt was murdered well before uh, Maggie was born. She never met her. her mother's younger sister, I want to say. And it's one of the most remarkable pieces of writing I've ever read in terms of how it manages to get across kind of the ins and outs of legislation but also it's an incredibly revealing and vulnerable piece in terms of her talking about where she's at where her family is at and just some of the most stunning turns of writing about grief and feeling connected to someone by blood but not knowing that person and about connection and justice and yeah, it absolutely blew me away. And I, despite how, despite how difficult the subject matter was, the way that Maggie Nelson handles it is like so deft that you feel just enlightened reading it mm. rather than like nothing skimmed over. Yeah. So that, that was, oh, that was great. Also, Being on holiday was on social media a fair bit less, and that was nice. So you could could say, is that a lack of culture? Or uh, I don't know. I don't know how the points work anymore, Ed.
0: Uh, So we'll go to the news uh, for this week, and uh, we have a couple of of small stories before we get to the... um the big one that's really kind of overshadowed everything over the last couple of days. First off uh, we'll, we'll catch up with a story that we talked about a little bit a couple of weeks ago which was the story that uh, Jenny Slate was going to be stepping down from the role of Missy in Big Mouth because uh, she didn't feel that it was right for her to be playing a biracial character when she herself is not biracial and there was a, a bit of speculation about who would be taking over that role uh, in the future and it was announced this week that uh, Ayo Adibri would be taking over the role. Uh, she is a comedian and, and writer who is... Uh, I mainly know from her appearances on podcasts, particularly her appearances on Hollywood handbooks and she's been on Blank Check uh, recently talking about The Secret Life of Bees which was a, a very, very funny episode that I would highly recommend to anyone. But she's an incredibly funny, really great performer and just all-round just like a hilarious person, particularly if you follow her on Twitter, where uh, earlier in this week she was joking around about having bought Quibi for like $40 or something which was uh, <laughs> <laughs> a funny joke just on its face but I, I'm very excited to see her taking over the role, I think that she's great this is a great opportunity for her and yeah, as I was saying, time, kind of feels like a nice progression of a conversation that probably should have been had uh, before about you know white people voicing characters that aren't white so it's it's nice to see Big Mouth kind of taking the right step to correct that and also picking you know probably one of the most perfect people they could have chosen to play the role.
1: It was really funny seeing her on Twitter so I followed her for years on Twitter and I've absolutely loved her stuff I've not been too aware of her performances on podcasts or on shows but I know she, I know she's a pretty active writer and there was that meme going around a little while ago sort of real me and animated me and she resurrected it quite perfectly for this. Mm-hmm. And it's a really interesting situation because I'm not entirely sure who took the lead on stepping down or not and whether that's even particularly important. But I think Jenny Slate did the solid thing there, you know, and it's not it's not the perfect human behavior cuz, you know, we're all still figuring out that she really shouldn't have had that part in the first place. <laughs> um, mm. Myself included. But I'm so excited. I think that's great. It'll be interesting to see how Big Mouth carries on because I do think it's one of the few adult animations out there that is kind of manages to be, I, I think, all at once, like incredibly explicit but also kind of politically correct ish. Or at least it's trying to be. Like, there's, a, I mean, being sex positive does not mean that you're woke. Like, two very different things. It doesn't mean that you are um, up on how to describe and treat each other. And I tried watching it again the other day, and it's sort of, I have to be in a very specific mood for Big Mouth myself. But I wonder if it'll have a bit of an overhaul because I think parts of it are, the best parts of Big Mouth for me, and when it just leans into being quite absurd,
0: and mm-hmm. it stops
1: thinking too much about being risque, because I just keep coming back to that ladybug talking about the bussy, i.e. the bug <laughs> pussy. But you know where it's like it's fine if it's a lady, an animated ladybug telling me this, and leaning into um, Jason Mrazukis's character having an affair with both of his pillows am i remembering that right (laughs) but you know where it's just like well the the core of this comedy is that it's really silly and it happens to be about sex and puberty you know rather than the other way around but so i I just think it's going to be a really interesting example of how things move forward Mm. precisely because it it seems to be quite out there should we say
0: Mm, yeah absolutely our next story again in terms of keeping up with stories that we've been covering for a while um, and you know everyone's been covering the coronavirus obviously but one of the stories that we've kind of been talking about every so often is you know about the practicalities of filmmaking and making television during this time about how you know a lot of tv shows and films aren't being made right now i know that in the week, we got our first look at uh, P- Paul Thomas Anderson's new movie, which is currently filming. And, you know, there was a. It was interesting seeing that, uh, you know, the little behind the scenes looks at how making a movie on a pretty decent scale looks now in terms of, like, him be, uh, PTA being on set with his mask and everything and everyone being quite far away and all this sort of stuff. But, you know, it's a complicated thing that everyone's trying to work around. And it means that we are currently going through. Oh, we are about to go through uh, a weird time for television where, you know, we've gone through the period where pilots would have been made and picked up and new shows would have gone into production and most of them just aren't because there isn't really much of a way to do that stuff safely and what that basically means now is that networks are scrambling to try and think of stuff to air and to kind of keep the content going and CBS announced this week that they're going to try and lessen the problem by airing the first season of Star Trek Discovery and the fourth season of One Day at a Time on their you know, their main networks previously. Uh, Star Trek Discovery had aired some episode on, on CBS to kind of draw attention to it and to get people to sign up for CBS All Access, but most of the show has aired there or in the UK. It's been on Netflix, and One Day at a Time obviously was on Netflix for a couple of years before moving over to Pop TV. So I think that's quite interesting in the, the, the way that these shows, which... You know, by all rights, probably should have been on network television. It certainly seems strange that CBS, which has had Star Trek, you know, since it started and has this long storied history with the show, would have kind of used it as a way to to promote their streaming service rather than just putting it on TV and you know allowing lots of people to see it. But it's 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 an interesting look into how different networks are dealing with this, and uh, I think you knows, it could be quite interesting to see. What happens with other networks, like, you know, will NBC dip into their wealth of Peacock originals to kind of, like, bulk uh, bulk up their schedule? You know, it's, it's, it's an interesting problem that networks are having to deal with.
1: It is a weird one, because I don't know of anyone that I know who really watches too much terrestrial TV now. I think really mm. the big terrestrial TV thing in the UK anyway, maybe in the US too, but definitely in the UK is soaps. Like this mm. is the first time EastEnders has been off the air in like 20, 30 years. Um, so they're sort of running running much older series and starting from the beginning. But that was something that, you know, was incredibly fresh and immediate TV. Say what say what you like about soaps. So if it's not for you, then it's fine. But you can't deny that that is like the most factory level of TV. And I just I wonder because this is it. It's gonna it's the knock on longer lasting effect, isn't it? Of the more time that people aren't necessarily able to film, or we're just gonna see like a like a. I wonder if it'll be a very specific look, or mm. the certain kinds of stories that we can tell. And I think it's going to be really interesting the next five, 10 years as to whether anyone will actually want to see the pandemic or lockdown represented at all. Mm. Cause we don't really have that like way back when this started and you and I were talking about cultural references and it was like, Oh, it's a bit like this. And it's a bit like that. But I also feel that there's been such a push in terms of current affairs to mm. make, documentaries and and the like that i mean i don't i don't know i wonder if it'll be something and i mean i'm sorry for kind of making a comparison to world war because i think that's often quite problematic in terms of the pandemic but culturally i wonder if it will be like similar to what we saw in terms of world war Two and what that did for the cinema as well because in in when the war was actually happening you know, the style of cultural output was propaganda Mm -hmm. and just like anything for anyone to hold on to. And then, you know, even now we're still getting, it's like so many stories filtering out and ones that are maybe no longer confidential or ones that are much more open to being received. They involve things like race and gender, for example, you know, basically anything that is from a non (laughs) non-colonial <laughs> standpoint is is all still coming out so i don't know but i do think it's going to be a while until a lot of new stuff is being filmed and released but it's it's not to say that we don't have plenty to be going on with as an audience to catch up with
0: mm. yeah it's the collective monkey's paw of everyone complaining for years that there's too much tv of uh, <laughs> of it just suddenly just suddenly ending for a bit it's like oh wow guess i have got time to catch up on things is collective
1: funky poor our prog band name ed
0: <laughs> i think it should be good good at the very least it's a b-side at least <laughs> um, i was just trying to think of what shows would handle the pandemic particularly well i think one that i know has just gone back into it Production because one of the stars was on Never Not Funny this week was is um the show Superstore which is you know a sitcom set at okay, a yes. Walmart style yeah big store and they're all going back into production on the show that they would have you know I, I don't I don't know if their season was cut short or whatever but you know they they've not been in production for a little while and that feels like one where the setting is inherently very connected to the experience of a lot of people of the pandemic because it's so much of the culture war around masks and stuff has taken place in commercial spaces in it's only in, in the UK sorry in the US where there's been loads of videos of people being kicked out of stores for refusing to wear a mask and completely losing their fucking minds over it I think there's a lot of potential there if you want to kind of like tackle those stories and that that's just inherent to the setting that you kind of would have to deal with that sort of I think that one could be quite interesting another one I think would be the HBO series High Maintenance which is oh um, yeah A you know sort of anthology about you know a weed dealer who who goes around New York and is delivering to people. I think that one, a just like the production of it suggests that it'd be fairly easy for them to like ramp up production anyway because it's such a limited cast and you don't necessarily have the same people in contact with each other all the time. But also the experience of being a weed dealer in New York as the pandemic is hitting or as everyone is trying to get back to normal. I don't know. That seems like a a dramatically and uh, comedically very fruitful area for someone to explore. And uh, finally in our news segment, um, the story that certainly shocked shocked me when it broke on Friday, and I think shocked pretty much everyone, uh, was the the death of Chadwick Boseman at the age of, of 43. He uh, uh, died of colon cancer, he was di- uh, diagnosed in 2016 and kept the diagnosis uh, a secret, except for you know, his family, and he underwent treatment for... Uh, with chemotherapy and surgery during those times he was working on all these other projects that he was working on including obviously his work on Black Panther and all the other Marvel movies most recently uh, an amazing performance in Spike Lee's The 5 Bloods and it's just unreal really in some ways I know when I first saw the story break on Friday you know I was just scrolling through Twitter getting upset about the world as we do, and occasionally seeing a joke I liked. But, um, you know, like, it scrolled past it. I didn't immediately take in what it was, and then I suddenly saw just loads of people retweeting it with or quote-tweeting it saying, what? And it was like, no, what, this isn't real. And then the next day I would see headlines pop up on, like, the New York Times or on the AV Club saying, like, you know, R.I.P. Chadwick Boseman. And my initial response was just, what? Fuck, no, that's not real. Yeah. That's not true. I felt, (laughs)
1: yeah, I felt really similar to when Lynn Shelton died earlier this year.
0: Mm, Just mm. someone
1: who was so positive and brilliant and supportive and generous and had so much important work to do. Like the Mm. work that they'd already done was staggering (laughs) and important. Mm. And it felt like both of them were just really starting their ascent to where they should be. I was... in such shock, it was so unreal, and I think it's interesting in terms of how much we feel as an audience when you do have a public figure, how much we feel a right to them and what's going mm-hmm. on with them, and that, and I, how 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 much do we have really? But that Chadwick Boseman kept something so so scary. Like my mum was diagnosed with colon cancer before it metastasized, and and I know what it's like, and from from a loved one's point of view, and well, there's no good cancer, is there, Ed? But mm. um, that he's been that he was dealing with it, and still did mm. his work and did his best work, <laughs> whilst 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 trying to heal from this immense threat, and that so many people feel that loss and you know, reading people's tributes and even though I love Black Panther and it's definitely my favourite of the Marvel um properties, I think because it is just so much more interesting mm. than any of the others. And has so much real stuff to say and do and, and how much that film meant to people, it only really hit me when I saw someone said, I think it was Issa Rae on Instagram, and she said, "You know, you gave us a literal black superhero." I was mm. like, "Oh yeah, we didn't have one on that scale," and the way that he fought for how um, T'Challa would sound. Um, oh, I mean, what what an artist! What an absolute dream! And you know, the fact that that we only got him in one Black Panther film is really sad. And a lot of people were saying, oh, this is quite ghoulish to speculate about the franchise. But Mm -hmm. I think depending on the angle, it's important because you've just left black audiences completely bereft of their hero. And I think Mm -hmm. it's fair to be like, what will happen next? And if it's not, if, if no one minds, if you don't mind Ed, I think just get Letitia Wright up and let's get the queen of Wakanda and carry on Black Panther in the spirit of Chadwick Boseman, because just because he's no longer with us doesn't mean that intellectual property that he established is any less important and you know right now like utterly vital to be perfectly honest
0: Mm, yeah i think based on like what they've done in the comics with shuri that would be the the logical thing they could do because i think shuri has become the the black panther on multiple occasions but yeah you're right in terms of him like giving people a superhero the thing that uh made me tear up multiple times over the weekend was people were resharing that video of a bunch of uh, you know black kids at a school like dancing and cheering and going crazy because they'd been told they were going to go and see Black Panther oh, and okay. uh, yeah every time people like shared pictures of their their kids you know kind of like posing doing the wakanda the wakanda pose and then you know they're just you know it really did bring home what Black Panther as a film as a cultural event meant to so many people and yeah that was apparent at the time i remember going and seeing the movie opening weekend and just being in a theater with so many black audience members who had shown up you know dressed up you know it like you know because it was a big because it was a big event so they were in there they were dressed up in some wearing kind of like Afri- traditional african clothing and things like that which was really really cool and i think just the outpouring of grief from his death really have at home what that meant, you know. People being able to see someone who looks like them being presented as this huge superhero in this like colossally successful movie, this big blockbuster that became a worldwide event. Yeah, it just reminded me anew just how phenomenal that movie was, both as you know a movie. You know, it's it's a really great superhero movie that, like like you say, is way more interesting than what a lot of those Marvel movies tried to do but just as this kind of like seismic event in pop culture and it becomes and all of his performances from you know 2016 onwards they just become so much more poignant when you think that he was making them whilst knowing that he had this this disease that was in all all likelihood he wasn't going to get better from particularly you know, once it, it went from stage 3 to stage 4 and you know that that in partic- is particularly true when you look at his performance in Defied Bloods where he plays a character who died before the events of the movie and is constantly seen in flashbacks and is kind of this Christ-like angelic figure who kind of like haunts the movie and the other members of his squad as they go to try and find his body you know the fact that he's the only one of the cast who's presented as young whilst everyone else kind of got to grow old it just becomes just achingly more poignant uh, in it reminds me in some ways of when Heath Ledger died and when I rewatched Brokeback Mountain for the first time after he passed away, and just being struck by the the just horrible tragedy, the fact that Heath Ledger, you know, portrayed someone who lived older than he himself, you know, got to live, you know, that he he gets um, uh, yeah, he got to become old in that movie in a way that you know he wasn't afforded in life, and I think that's that's true as well if you look at something like get on up you know Chadwick Boseman's performance in that as James Brown where he plays him from 17 to 55 I think and he's like totally convincing either uh, as both and that's just that that was the first of his performance that I saw him in that really made me think oh my god this guy's like amazing what like such a star and there is kind of like a terrible poetry to the fact that he became famous for portraying icons of American history, you know, like Jackie Robinson, obviously, uh, James Brown, Thurgood Marshall. And, you know, he has he now, unfortunately, has kind of become an icon of American history. And I think, you know, as, as we were talking earlier about the the extent to which people have been grieving Chadwick Boseman, I think is really and how much his work's touched people, is really attested to by the response on Twitter where yeah. people have been like, there's just been outpourings of grief for days, people like constantly retweeting videos of him, like there's that one uh, from Jimmy Fallon where uh, people were told to say what they wanted to say to Chadwick Bozeman, just talking to a poster and then he would walk out and say hello to them and just how much these these people react to it and just kind of like, completely freaking out or outtakes from Black Panther where he's just kind of like joking around, interviews with him yeah, it, and, and obviously, you know, there's some great obituaries written of him, uh, as uh, the obituary writer for the New York Times like mentioned, you know, they don't often have pre-written obituaries for people who are so young, so are these are obituaries having to be written very quickly and, you know, in a state of shock, but there have been some wonderful ones. The Atlantic had a great one from David Sims. Um, yeah, I think it, it's a real testament to who he was as a person that he has inspired such eloquent discussion of of what he meant
1: absolutely and twitter announced that the tweet announcing so his his passing this in memoriam kind of announcement tweet is is the most liked tweet on twitter ever mm. um which it's funny that we're doing this more and more you know in terms of where we're at in society and culture and um in the pandemic as well kind of leaning on social media that much more um i mean i basically came as i mentioned like I, I sort of had a bit of a holiday in the digital realm as well as uh from from not in the city where i live and to come back and to see that i mean for his his wife who survives him and his family and his friends i mean i mean you and i both know it it doesn't really take the edge off but there's something incredibly heartening to know that the person you love is loved by so many and for the best possible mm. reasons
0: mm, yeah absolutely Uh, So we'll move on to our our main topic now, and it is the, I guess, the cultural weight uh, of the Criterion Collection. Um, This was inspired by an article in the New York Times by Kyle Buchanan and Reggie Ugwu, which was how the Criterion Collection crops out African-American directors, in which they discuss the fact that the Criterion Collection, which, you know, is this lauded label that puts out... DVDs and Blu-rays of great works of classic cinema that's been around since the 1980s in 1984 was when it was founded and started out putting out laser discs and then obviously moved to uh, a DVD and Blu-ray and has been a, an important pioneer in a lot of the stuff that we now take as as standard for you know home media You know they were one of the first labels to really do director's commentaries and things like that and extra features and things like that stuff that we now think of as standard in all home media and the article you know points out that they have released thousands of movies they you know release 60 movies every year more or less on on blu-ray at this point and despite all of that in the collection there's only four african-american directors represented mm. uh, only two of which are currently alive spike lee and charles burnett the article mainly focuses on the current CEO of the company, Peter Becker, who in the article is very uh, contrite and self-aware and points out how a lot of the the inherent whiteness of a lot of the collection stems from his own personal blind spots as the person who is involved in making these picks and, and the kind of instigation for the article. It talks about how he came to uh, agree to put out charles burnett's to sleep with anger which is an an amazing movie one of the best movies of the 90s which only recently came out on blu-ray on the criterion collection because charles burnett was brought in to do record a feature for a different movie and the person who brought him in was like hey we should probably talk to him about maybe putting out this movie because it's never had a physical release and how in some respects you know the close circle of filmmakers who are of contemporary filmmakers who are represented there tend to be there because they have a personal relationship with Peter Becker and you know a, a lot of the myopic quality of the Criterion collection comes from the fact that he's the one who makes the decisions and ultimately you know he surrounds himself with like-minded people and the the, the collection tends to represent what that small group considers important in cinema and it's a great article i think it's very good at laying across the problems with what happens when a canon becomes so like dominated by a small group, and tends to have such a limited focus? Whilst also acknowledging that you know the Criterion Collection is generally a force for good in terms of putting out these movies on uh, in high quality, and sometimes you know movies that are quite obscure become elevated because they're in the the collection. But I thought it was interesting the way in which it then sparked a broader conversation about the the sheer impact that the Criterion Collection currently. Has on film culture, you know how it tends to eat up all of the oxygen in the room when it comes to talking about physical releases of movies. And yes, yeah, so I thought it'd be an interesting thing to to discuss the way in which this one label has become has has this like really outsized influence on cinephile culture and in ways that are both good and and bad.
1: Yeah. So the Criterion is such an interesting. Canon, I found a quote from um, Peter Becker where where he's, he's kind of unpicking the appalling lack of representation, let's be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, and he says a couple of things. He says, I think canons end up being defined as much by what they leave out as by what they let in, which mm-hmm. I think you and I were sort of, I mean, that's a very succinct way of talking um, about what you and I talked about when we were talking about the idea of a canon a little while ago. Um, and he also then goes on to say there's nothing I can say about it that will make it okay the fact that things are missing and specifically that black voices are missing is harmful and that's clear we have to fix that and which is true and good that they realize the problem and I think it's this it's this thing where I feel like as an audience member if you're white and a cinephile I mean, is it, is it just me or is it rare to think like, I I don't know until like this article in, in the uh, the New York Times, the MI Times had a really impressive graphic saying that, you know, mm. there's over a thousand, I don't know whether you saw it, there's over like a thousand yeah. um titles for the Criterion Collection and there's any and four and you see them all laid out in this graphic and you're like, oh God, yeah. When you lay it out like that, when you put it all together and I think it's this really fascinating microcosm in terms of culture and politics where it's like, on an individual case-by-case basis it may not be obvious but then as soon as you zoom out as soon as you can kind of have like a kind of top-down view of it you're like the system's fucked (laughs) Mm. um and that criterion is not only sort of like a mark of quality for people who like watching films but for filmmakers themselves like being part Mm. of the criterion collection is like a big deal and I remember seeing, I think it was Joe Cornish a little while ago, was like, oh, you know, Attack the Block is now part of the Criterion Collection. Jokes, but it's one of the best pieces of fan art and the one that's meant the most mm. in the past few years. And, you know, that's, that's it, isn't it? I mean, it's significant and we can't get around the fact that it is significant and that it's built this brand of... I mean, these are films that you can... that are available elsewhere... Like it's not like they have is the idea that you get this kind of special edition. It's just it's just become a mark of quality.
0: Hmm. And it's also in some cases, you know, because of the the work they do to restore some of those movies as well. Yeah. Because it's it's not merely like uh In some cases, it is literally like this is a really good version of this movie because like they're putting out a special edition of uh, Parasite this year, which is very mm-hmm. much kind of like. That's obviously a wonderful movie. Very glad it won Best Picture. Very deserving of all the success it has had. But, like, probably doesn't need to be in the Criteria collection just yet. Certainly doesn't need kind of a special Blu ray to go along with the Blu ray that would have been put out anyway. Uh, but, uh, separately, they're also putting out a Blu ray of Memories of Murder, Bong Joon Ho's earlier movie. And my money probably is best it's certainly up there i think it's a, a wonderful movie but one that's you know not been very easily available in the u.s for quite a while at this point and certainly not in a decent quality or last year i think they put out like uh the restored version of the i i just say, when i say restored version of the magnificent Anders and Ambersons, i don't mean they found the last half hour <laughs> i mean they just put a that, as I was saying it, I was like, "Wait, no, that that sounds way more monumental than it was." You know, but they they you know took Magnificent Amazons, which is a, a beautiful, wonderful movie, one of uh, one of best, even in its butchered form, and you know they presented it in the best looking version of it that they've seen. So there, there's a lot of work that goes into it in terms, and, and you know they have all the essays and stuff like that, and, and in some cases, very extensive special features. So they they put a lot of work into these sort of things, but you're right in terms of you know that they do. Reinforce uh, a certain idea of of what counts as being an important seminal movie, and that there, there is some like representation in terms of like there's lots of world cinema in there in the the New York Times of article. They talk about how there's 11 percent of the movies they put out are Asian because they are kind of one of the big gateways for a lot of people to Japanese cinema and Chinese cinema and things like that. Certainly, they were they were for me like that's how I saw a lot of Akira Kurosawa's movies was mm-hmm. either Buying them on Criterion or more recently watching them on the on FilmStruck and the Criterion Channel when it supplanted it, but there's a story again in the the New York Times piece where they talk to Julie Dash who is the director of the the absolutely brilliant uh, movie Dorses of the Dust, yeah. which was at one point presented as a as a potential pick for the Criterion collection, and in the story they talk about how. Uh, Julie Dash herself had like watched a lot of Criterion movies when she was at film school because it's often used as a resource for film students I imagine even more so now through like because I think a lot of their movies end up on like Canopy and things like that which is a big resource for people at universities and I was just struck by how crushing that must be for YouTube like presented with this label and you know what he represents to be like oh this is what matters in cinema for you to then present your movie and for them to just be like no uh, but you know we don't get it and then peter Becker himself is like very contrite about that so he he freely admits i just didn't get the movie and i realize now that was a terrible mistake And if oh, yeah, i had chance. a chance to put it out again uh you know like maybe he would have and, and you know a few months ago when the protests uh, over george floyd's death started to really pick up the Criterion Channel put out a load of movies that they had the rights to, or that they were able to negotiate the rights to from other labels, uh, to uh, for free on their channel, and one of which was Doors of the Dust. So, you know, like and and Julie Dash it says in the piece, like you know, like wow, like so much can change in thirty years or, or whatever. But you know, there's a certain ruefulness to it that you know it took this huge societal shift and this huge civil rights movement for her movie to kind of get. The sort of platform and sort of attention from Criterion that it deserved when it came out in the early '90s, um, and that that really struck me about how individual taste can really stymie the chance for a movie like that to get the attention it deserves, because that again that was a movie that was not easy to see until a couple of years ago when I think Cohen Media put it out on Blu-ray. And it's just a real, real shame that that movie, which has had like a great cultural life, it's a huge influence on Beyonce's Lemonade, for example. That's I think that was one of the things that really led a lot of people to hear about it was when it was constantly cited as a huge influence on on that project. Uh, it it really just feels awful that it did not get the opportunity to you know be placed into the criteria. Uh, canon and be elevated the way that a lot of other movies by you know white male filmmakers of julie dash's generation were during that same time
1: Mm, i think that's it we can't really underestimate the influence of beyonce and her Mm. effect on daughter the dust kind of coming back into the consciousness and i think that's something that i've not seen black is king yet that's definitely uh something I need to rectify but in terms of what she does to use her platform to highlight other black makers and and creators throughout history <laughs> it's not mm. always new it's just like um yeah this is kind of a big deal for us and it's important but I think you're right it's interesting that um for I mean I don't even know because as far as I'm aware it's not really on it's not really in the public domain as to how selections for the criterion collection are made mm. I, I mean I'm guessing it's not really by like vote um and if it is literally just Peter Becker's taste why why have that I want a mix of different people in the same way that you know I used to read Little White Lies quite a bit and it's the idea of like I know vaguely what you know, I have an understanding of what their brand is and where their alignment is, but, you know, I like to think that their reviewers can disagree with each other mm. so that there isn't that, maybe there's not that kind of like rigor or diversity at all. Like, to get, don't get me wrong, like, I, the criterion is something I don't really personally engage in, but as we've said, like, I'm very aware of the brand and what it stands for. Um, but why, why do I just want Peter Becker's DVD collection? Do you know mm. what I mean? <laughs> because that's not canon that's just what pete likes mm. and, I'm, and i'm glad that he's contrite you know he needs to be
0: <laughs> yeah in the article they kind of talk about it a little bit in terms of like you know it's a small company it has about 50 employees and there are this it does seem like there are discussions about what movies they should pursue and obviously you know it's it's not entirely like you know peter becker or one of the other like decision makers in the company says okay yes we want to put that movie in and as soon as they get the go ahead it goes in it's also down to like rights and distribution and things like that like uh, at one point they talk about how during the laserdisc era of criterion they did have more they did have more movies by black directors in the collection like they put out uh, the Hughes Brothers, uh, Menace to Society was a big one. They put out uh, a version of, I want to say, Boys in the Hood, as well as um, Do the Right Thing, you know, uh, and and how when they made the transition over to uh, DVD and Blu-ray, they didn't have the rights for all of those when it came time for them to make those new editions. But, but Peter Becker fully admits, like, you know, that's something that I could i could have pressed for more i could have like made more phone calls i could have tried to make those negotiations happen and instead you know those releases were left to you know not kind of completely disappear into obscurity obviously like there's plenty of dvd versions and blu-ray versions of uh boys in the hood out there but something like menace to society i don't think is like why hugely available at this point that's one of those movies that was like really big in the 90s and i don't think has, has had as much of a a reassessment despite being a really furious and ferocious and and brilliant piece of filmmaking. And the Hughes brothers are kind of quoted in the piece as being rightly quite angry about that, of them being like an afterthought, having previously been not a centrepiece of of the Criterion Collection, but certainly of of being considered important enough to be included alongside, you know, Kurosawa and Bergman or whatever. And so, yeah, so it's not entirely... Down to just like oh they they're not looking at these old movies some of it is down to to rights or whatever but there is definitely a sense that uh, their their willingness to fight for certain movies to be included mm. tends to lie down to the individual passion of the people at the company and if they're not massively aware of you know black directors work and don't necessarily think that they should be included then then that is going to be reflected in the movies that they release and another example from the article is uh, ava duvernay is talks about how she approached them one point about putting out her day de- i think it was her debut or one of her early movies middle of nowhere which won the best director prize at sundance and was the first movie by a black woman director to win the best director at sundance and they refused and, and pete becker says i have no memory of that if she reaches out to me we'll absolutely have discussions about trying to put it out so again like it does seem to be it does seem to be the case that he and the people at the company are like totally aware that they have blind spots and are absolutely totally interested in correcting it but i don't think that necessarily you know that doesn't exonerate them for the damage that's already been done in terms of the fact that They have that their their canon has become whiter and more male over time as they have put out more titles and not kind of, you know, attempted to replicate the early diversity they had when they were a more niche, Mm. more expensive format of of Laserdisc.
1: That's really interesting. What an array of mayonnaise it is now then. Um, Mm. And I look forward to that being rectified it Shouldn't really just be down to the individual passion of one person, and this is something that I find mm. more and more. I mean, it's a long time ago, Ed, as I hope that I've um, <laughs> made clear that I was even like working in film and TV, but it, that's often what it will come down to. It will be this oddly sort of riddle of the mirroring of like a protagonist and a hero's journey just for one producer to get a film made, and mm. if that person is. You know, it shouldn't really just be about that one person. Do you know what I mean? Because I'm thinking again of um, Dominic Buchanan's open letter to BAFTA, Mm -hmm. and that came around recently in terms of him getting his that iconic BAFTA mask statue right, Mm -hmm. Um, and the the physical award. And uh, Dominic Buchanan, for anyone who's not aware, is uh, so the main one of the main uh, producers and driving forces behind the end of the fucking world its second season was recently showered with uh, with praise particularly from bafta and his open letter is just so heartbreaking because it's this bizarre thing of like well even if you do work really hard some some people will just come up with something that's kind of shitty enough and pernickety enough to say you still don't get this thing that everyone else got that you worked on and it is an incredibly compassionate Unfair letter to everyone else that he worked with. He's not shitting on his teammates in the slightest. He's just like, there is one glaring difference here. And that is that. And I think with the power of something like the Criterion Collection, so to go back to the sort of analogy of like, oh, a sort of film magazine or like, cause it's all curation, right? Like mm. a film magazine has a curation streak in the same way that a DVD collection does and Criterion has a sort of house of film, right? In that way. And I mean, it's like, I keep coming back to Peter Becker's own quote. It's just about as much about what you leave out as to what you put in. Mm. And for a a magazine, for example, like a film reviewer to not review a massive film and to not say anything about it, people will be like, well, that's shade.
0: You know, Mm. that's
1: like, that's a story in itself that's silent but isn't being spoken about yet, but other people maybe will. I wonder how they'll be able to move forward because honestly i don't think this has dented their brand that much i think i think mm. because they have actually responded to it swiftly
0: yeah. um
1: when this criticism was kind of brought to them and de duverde as well what what a champ and seem genuinely contrite or at least have hired the right pr people to get across their message sufficiently um and i'm not saying that criterion collection should fail just off the basis of you know a a terrible but still hopefully Going forward, rectifiable oversight. Mm. I wonder how we'll all feel about this because I miss things like um, Tartan. Oh, um, yeah. Right? Like, what an incredible distribution house that did, or like, basically any kind of Korean, Japanese horror that i love was all through tartan distribution and tartan folded how many years ago
0: it's got to be at least it's got to be at least like 5 or 6
1: right like i remember hearing when they folded and being like feeling incredibly sad because that's the problem and again it's capitalism Ed. finding these places that that appreciate stuff that is niche to a certain audience and basically spe- specializing like special mm. like specialism is um is looked down upon and because it's just not seen as profitable enough because it doesn't appeal to the (laughs) the majority um Mm. it'll be interesting to see what criterion do i would like i mean everything sounds great but i would like to see them rectify things and also not by doing it as like criterion collection black lives matter
0: Mm.
1: you know just you're in the criterion collection (laughs) that's (laughs) that's what that should be
0: yeah I think it also helped that since they uh, launched the Criterion channel last year that has been notably more diverse than the collection itself um, they have put out tended to put movies on there by black directors or by women there's a whole section specifically where they're like hey do you want to see movies by women hey there's loads of them go on knock yourself out but I think that what is kind of obscured there is a lot of that is because they do that through distribution detail, uh, deals with other labels so for example they had a box set on there and i think it might still be on there it certainly was a little while ago called um, pioneers of african-american cinema which has all of these movies from i think it's from like 1918 to the mid-1920s And it's like all these movies that were directed by African-Americans. And it's really good. Some of them are just like fragments because the movies themselves are mostly lost. But it's really great. A collection of these movies that, you know, are often ignored when people talk about the history of American cinema. And it's great that that's up on the Criterion channel, but that collection was put out by a different company. And I think this gets to another kind of problem with criterion separate from their representational things which is that they have like at this point they are such a kind of like totemic brand of what good cinema accounts for that a lot of other labels kind of really struggle to make their voices heard in a way that's proven very detrimental as like physical media sales have declined over the last ten years. Like mm. Criterions largely been able to keep putting stuff out and expand obviously with the the channel and everything like that and they're able to put out these big gorgeous Box sets every year like um, they did the Bergman one like two years ago they did Godzilla last year and then this year they put out the kind of amazing Agnes Varda collection yeah. and they're able, to do, they're able to do that because they've held onto their audience occasionally they'll put out something like the Jackie Chan double bill which will be like a gangbuster sell, uh, seller because there's it kind of appeals to their audience but it also kind of reaches slightly outside of it because there'll be loads of people who use huge martial arts fans will be so excited to see like a real good high quality blu-ray version of the two the first two police story movies and i think that's kind of to the detriment of those companies but also of, of film culture because i feel like criterion have reached the point where they are for physical media, what Netflix is for streaming, which is the for a lot of people, if a movie's not on Netflix, it's almost as if it doesn't exist. And so, mm, mm-hmm. like, people will be like, "Yeah, oh, like, I don't know, Moonlight should be in the Criterion Collection. It's like, well, yes, sure, but it also is widely available on Blu-ray, so here yeah. you like, you can still buy it, and you can still watch it, that's fine. It doesn't need the kind of, like, impremature of criterion to be considered valuable and like there are loads of companies like arrow until recently twilight time which unfortunately just went out of business that were putting out like really great blu-ray versions of great movies that were not out on criterion but were still great and were being given like good releases Uh, and they are just not held in the same regard so those movies are kind of ignored in a way that i think is like just hugely detrimental because you need what you would need or what you would want for like a really healthy film culture is for as many films as possible to be available on as many formats as possible and you kind of need these dvd and blu-ray labels to exist and thrive in that and partly i mean partly it's because criterion have have been really good at what they're doing and they're obviously really good at marketing themselves and everything and they have this place as being like a one-stop shop if you want to you know learn about filmmaking but partly it's just like market forces have meant that they are now the one label that most people know and so they get the undue level of attention and so we end this week's episodes we end all our episodes with shot of a shot recommends which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you listeners will enjoy as well emily what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week
1: i know i mentioned it in my cultural roundup of this weekend but i just want to do another push for the red parts by maggie nelson mm. because i think it's been sort of like You know, when you feel like things are running in the back of your mind, like CPU, (laughs) once you've mentioned it and you're like, oh yeah, subconscious, it it does bring stuff to the fore eventually. I think what's so remarkable about it as well is that even though it's such a specific, horrific case of loss and death and that happened to her family, the way that she manages to write about things that speak to sort of wider experiences in terms of like generational trauma, pain and the influences that these things have like the mighty ripples that they leave out over kind of like personal and national history and I think I just found I didn't think I was going to relate to it (laughs) but in terms of how she writes about grief in particular I was just I read it on the kindle app on my phone and I ended up just highlighting pretty much all of it because it was so Which defeats the defeats the point of highlighting, surely. But um, yeah, it was all (laughs) it was all highlighted in yellow by the time I was done for it. So uh, yeah, (laughs) the red parts by Maggie Nelson is my. (laughs) I'm coming back to it. What about you, Ed? What are you recommending?
0: I will recommend a uh, a streaming TV series that I watched um, over the last pretty much all of over the last couple of days. Uh, I like many people, you know, I saw the Chadwick Boseman news on Friday and I got very bummed out by it, so I decided to sign up for HBO Max for one week trial and watch all of Harley Quinn, their oh, uh, fun. animated uh, series you know, based on the character, the the, the DC character, the uh, Joker's girlfriend, who and I had heard lots of really good things about it, but I was not prepared for just how much of a delight it is. It is very funny, it's super violent, <laughs> it's really bloody, lots of people get exploded, there's lots of viscera everywhere, but... <laughs> It's got such a fun tone. It's very reminiscent of like the Venture Brothers in terms of like having this really scabrous sense of humor and, or but also being just like totally daft and silly. Um, like the third episode is one where the character they go to the bar mitzvah of the penguin's nephew, which is really funny and just such a great plot for the establishing the tone of the series. It's got some really sharp jokes my favorite one i think so far was one in which poison ivy breaks a killer tree in half sees the inside of the rings and then goes oh god it was just a kid it's just such a such a funny joke to me um (laughs) but the thing that really kind of keeps amazing me is its voice cast um Kaley Cuoco is great as Harley Quinn. It's like a really great vocal performance. Lake Bell is a really fun uh, Poison Ivy. Uh, Alan Tudyk plays like a bunch of characters, most notably the Joker and Clayface. Uh, Jacob Tremblay plays robin in a few episodes this kind of like really kind of like pipsqueaky version of robin which is really fun uh, chris maloney plays jim gordon dedrick De bader plays batman as he had on many occasions but uh, jason alexander is a real delight as a cyborgman the old jewish landlord of poison ivy who is also a cyborg <laughs> and is constantly complaining and constantly falling asleep um uh, Ron Funches is great as King Shark but the absolute pinnacle are things like you know Alfred Molina showing up for one or two episodes as Mr Freeze it's like every so often they'll just be like oh my god these they're getting such great names and they're all so perfectly cast and it's just a real blast that I've like torn through the first season and I'm like halfway through the second over the last couple of days so if you are able to sign up for HBO Max for a week then go like knock yourself out watch that it's a great time also watch all of search party because that's all on there now least <gasps> the first the first three seasons are on there now and i think the fourth is going to be there at some point so wait until the fourth season comes out but yeah that's that's my recommendation harley quinn it's an absolute riot it's really fun uh, check it out again though very very violent <laughs> so <laughs> if you're not good with cartoon violence that's very very bloody uh then yeah, be advised. But uh, yeah, I'm I'm really loving it. If you've enjoyed this episode of the show, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, Spotify, all the usual places. Rate us, review us and recommend us to your friends. It's the best way to help us grow our audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next time with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me.
1: And it's goodbye from me.